Welcome to Dermatology Morning Commute. Topical agents didn't work. When to consider systemic treatment for parigo nodularis. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. In this third podcast, Dr. Sean Quatra and Dr. Serena Amaria discuss systemic treatments to turn to when topical treatments aren't working. On September 29, 2022, after this podcast series was recorded, the FDA approved dupilumab subcutaneous injection for the treatment of adults with parigo nodularis. This is the first approved treatment for PN. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash pnodularis3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Quatra is an Associate Professor of Dermatology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Baltimore. Dr. Almaria is an Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School and part of the faculty in the Department of Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Quatra will begin our discussion. Serena, thanks for joining me again as we continue our discussion on parigonagularis. When our topical therapies are ineffective, which is almost all the time, as we know, we then turn to systemic treatments. So let's talk about some of these and how we individualize our patients' treatments. Uh, so I know that we were discussing this earlier and you wanted to make a few things clear up front. So I'm gonna turn it over to you to make those few things clear, Serena. Sure, thanks, Sean. Uh, you know, one thing that I think it's really important and why so many patients actually get stuck in this endless rut of various topicals is because right now there are no FDA-approved treatments for parigonodularis. Now, I'm hoping that landscape changes very, very soon, uh, but at this point, there really are no FDA-approved treatments. And so I think it's always easier to con- for people to start to think about topicals. There's a lower you know, kind of barrier to to entry, but we often have to turn to systemic therapies because systemic therapies are are required when patients have such, you know, widespread and severe symptoms. And so, you know, we've, you know, we've actually published together uh, in the JAD an article kind of addressing what that, you know, really various systemic agents as well as topicals, but various systemic agents that have been used, what's reported in the literature, what we found ourselves to be, um, and other kind of dermatology experts who manage PN, who, uh, you know, what we reach to thus far, right, of, of these various agents when we're trying to manage PN patients. And so, you know, I'll just, if I'll take a moment, I'll kind of jump through what I would think of. And want, depending on the patients, you always have to think about what are their other systemic disorders, their health needs. Uh, you know, if, if a patient already has extensive like liver and renal disease, you may steer towards one agent or another. Um, Some of the first that I really look to myself include methotrexate at various doses. I start at a low dose. I start to escalate um, as needed. I give patients really a good three months, sometimes even, you know, four months try as long as they're not having any issues um, and side effects from the methotrexate to see if that helps. 
another one that we commonly use, um, and in the past, I think have used more, but now we're starting to kind of bridge away from that. Uh, but there's, there is, you know, data in the literature supporting its work. And I will say its effect. And I will say in my own hands, it's been helpful for some patients, but that's cyclosporin. Um, you know, the, I will say, I want to acknowledge the fact that the level of evidence in the literature for many of these agents, even then, even when we know them to be effective, uh, you know, it's pretty poor. It's often limited to case series, case reports, few small, you know, small trials, um, often uncontrolled. And so while I have found methotrexate and cyclosporin to be useful for many of these patients over the years, you know, for any number of reasons, particularly side effects, medical comorbidities, they're not always the best agent. And so I am looking forward to new horizons. Uh, Sean, what have you used in your experience? What do you like? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think we have pretty similar approaches. Uh, I personally almost never will do a topical therapy alone unless there's very few nodules will be going to systemic therapies. Even if I do phototherapy, I usually combine it with something else. And like you said, methotrexate usually is a reasonable place to start um, because at least right now, we don't have any FDA-approved therapies, so at least we can get it, although it has variable efficacy. And uh, usually start it uh, orally, say, between 15 to 25 milligrams weekly and see patients back every few months. But again, it's very onerous with the labs, a baseline, a few weeks, and then all of that. So that's usually a pretty safe place to start. I would say for very aggressive cases, I'll do cyclosporin. So cyclosporin is, you know, between 2.5 and 5 mg per kg. I usually ramp that up pretty quick. The problem is, is that there's a time limit for it because of the kidneys. And so that's why I usually don't love doing that. But then we get sometimes pushed into a, between a rock and a hard place if someone has really bad disease. And then we have to do the cyclosporin. And there's so many side effects, actually. One of the problems is that I've encountered, especially with paragonodularis patients, is they're older, so more middle-aged folks uh, versus atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, uh, which are younger. And so we end up coming into problems with comorbidities and problems with therapies that are not targeted that affect those comorbidities. So cyclosporin can aggravate uh, hypertension that many of these patients have. As we know, many of these paragonodularis patients have uh, kidney issues. Uh, and so the methotrexate could actually be uh, a big problem and in many cases um, contraindicated. So I would say that those are kind of the first two. And actually, I've had a little bit more success um, doing injectable methotrexate yeah. uh, versus oral. That's been one of the things I've uh, kind of moved to also. But usually the first step is kind of one of those two agents, see patients back uh, in a few months and then yeah. go. I sometimes, you know, I must say, I actually also use mycophenolate in many of these patients, sometimes even before cyclosporin for the reasons that you have pointed yeah. out. You know, clearly some patients um, will have a hard time with mycophenolate because of the associated GI side effects, nausea, irritation, sometimes loose stools. It can limit how effective it is. You know, I've even jumped, and I know many people don't do this, but I've even jumped to oral tacrolimus in patients who have been so severe. Uh, and, you know, again, you have to really watch these patients pretty closely because of the, you know, the, the potential toxicities of these meds. So, you know, I think with many of the traditional agents, 
Uh, as so many of us are familiar, they require more frequent laboratory evaluation as well as just more uh, you know, intensive counseling of patients and thinking about their, their comorbidities. Um, I will actually say that one thing that I do personally to limit the dose of some immunomodulators or immunosuppressive agents is I will introduce relatively early uh, neuromodulators. So I will start, you know, if I have a patient who's already on methotrexate, they had some improvement, but they're not quite getting there, I will start to include, you know, low dose gabapentin and kind of escalate up there or pregabalin. Sometimes I'll use uh, tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and, and less commonly for me, uh, doxepin, which is also has the combined uh, antihistamine effect. But uh, I find, you know, those will kind of be my first go-to agents. And I will slowly start to increase those, engage whether there is a synergistic impact or really any impact on the patient well-being. That's something that, that I do quite frequently. And it'll allow me right to, to have a patient on often a lower dose of methotrexate or, or mycophenolate. Do you, do you do that too? Do you find it helpful or do you have other tricks? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, similarly, oftentimes using gabapentin or pregabalin, And one of the issues I came up with also here is that, again, PN patients are older. So usually I start at 300 milligrams, but I actually have had to cut back many cases, especially if folks are a little bit older, uh, like uh, 60s and above, uh, even to starting at 100 milligrams, because I found that many patients are very, very sensitive to the sedative properties. It's a little bit hard to predict which ones are going to be very sensitive to that. And I don't want anybody to get a hip fracture or anything like that. So that's been the main limiting factor to be able to push those doses where I want to go with both gabapentin and pregabalin, because I really think sometimes you need to be higher up, but they just can't tolerate the side effects. So that's definitely something I try. And then- Can I I jump in here? Because I think it's such an important point before we move on. So- Starting at low doses of neuromodulators in particular is so important for that reason. Sedation, dizziness, some patients even get nausea. Uh, if they have memory you know, concerns or issues, it can exacerbate those. And so I always actually, I always start at gabapentin at 100 or pregabalin at 25. You know, I, I even joke that some neurologists must laugh at me and pain specialists must laugh at me because I start at such low doses, but I've had patients who were started on, you know, again, 300, 600 or 900 milligrams in a day, and they really cannot function. And, you know, you bring this up in the context of patients who are a little bit older or may have issues with polypharmacy that exacerbate these, you know, this impact, but even in younger patients, I mean, it really can be very challenging. Albeit, you know, in Patients with parigonodularis, they tend to be a little bit older. So that's the, the population you're dealing with. But but in patients who are younger, who have this, it's still something that you need to consider. And so what I tend to do, my rubric for having patients or my ladder for having patients uh, increase is start them at these low doses. Sometimes I'll even give them a solution, right? And I'll have them, because there are liquid solution options that we give sometimes to kids or people who can't swallow pills. And I'll start them even at 50 milligrams of gabapentin. And what I'll do is they increase every three to seven days 
right? As tolerated, if they're not having any issues. And then if they're having sedation or dizziness, other side effects, I will ask them to hold at that dose, right? For two weeks, three weeks, even until they can increase. Because most of these patients are able, you know, to tolerate these drugs, but they really need a slow up titration. And the other thing that, you know, I'll allow you to touch on as I turn it back over is the importance of actually counseling them on the expected side effects. Patients get a lot of that when it's immunosuppressive agents, but they get very little of it. Surprisingly, they, they are never warned, right? This will take time. You will adapt, but you are going to have some of these symptoms early. And I think that really allays their fears and sets their expectations. Um, any, any other, other tips for how you handle that, Sean? Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought up the, um, the low dose and went into that because it is a big problem at the bedside. And that actually alludes to the fact that there are side effects of these drugs uh, beyond, you know, just being sedated. So a lot of derms give patients antihistamine still, and we know that histamine is not the driving pathway here. There's even a recent study showing that anticholinergic agents, even as simple as an antihistamine, a Benadryl or something like that, a low dose for a few years, can make you more likely to have dementia. And so that also applies to very sedating drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin and make sure we have lots of caution. But I guess it really shows the, the conundrum that we have. So some other agents I'll briefly touch on. So there's also opioid modulators. So one of them is naltrexone. Um, I honestly haven't had much success with naltrexone uh, in pregnodularis patients in my own experience. Um, there are also uh, kappa opioid receptor agonist uh, and mu antagonist called butorphanol inhaler that we've used in patients, uh, but I truly reserve that for my emergencies that are patients that are really terrible itch, can't sleep, can't move. And they're like, doc, you know, this is it. I cannot survive, cannot live this way. And uh, just for the listeners to prove for neuropathic pain, it's a nasal inhaler. So you can put it in a nostril and take a puff there. But uh, what I've found is when patients have tried that, it's very variable who it works in. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but patients get super sedated, oftentimes super tired. Um, there's also potential for uh, kind of abuse, but that kind of highlights how significant it is. We're using this nasal inhaler that's centrally active. Um, for the opioid modulators, I've had very limited success. What about you, Serena? Here's what I will say about um, kind of opioid modulators. I think particularly with respect to butorphanol, for the side effect reasons, right? And often because other, it can also in some cases actually exacerbate pain. So for patients who are already treated with chronic opioids, you know, I, I kind of steer away from it, but in the right patient, I'll use it. The, the one rule of thumb I will say is if it's going to work for chronic itching or pregonodularis, if it's going to work, it's going to work relatively quickly. Like patients can tell you, this is not a drug where you have to give it to them, you know, as opposed to something like gabapentin or pregabalin where, or amitriptyline or duloxetine or any of these other ones where you kind of have to give them several weeks of therapy at a, you know, a slow escalation to know if it'll have any impact. Butorphanol I found, uh, probably because it is, you know, intranasal, rapidly absorbed, usually impactful. Uh, patients know within 
couple of uses. So even within a few days, but I will give them up to like two weeks. If they have no impact at that point, I usually just stop it. Uh, The other thing to just know about that in addition to sedation is actually a lot of patients get headaches and and nausea with it. So you have to forewarn them um, with that as well. I also have not really found naltrexone to be very helpful. You know, I don't tend to use it very often. I'll reach for many others first uh, as it's been less effective. Um, You know, I'm curious because a lot of um, dermatologists, you know, have heard about the impact of thalidomide, uh, you know, in terms of how beneficial it can be for pregonodularis. I'm curious what your experience has been with that. I know you've used it in a handful of patients, Sean, we've discussed before. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I've used thalidomide. I hate to use it because... Uh, number one, it's very difficult for providers. There's a REMS program. It's very risky for patients. So my counseling session is, uh, here's a drug that uh, can cause you to have a pulmonary embolism and die. This could make you not be able to feel your legs. You could have nerve problems um, and on and on and on. Um, so it's a little bit difficult conversation. The, the funny thing is these patients are suffering so much, they will take anything. And so I, there have been many patients I've given thalidomide in. I usually start low, even as low as 50, and then I go up to hundred milligrams. We have monthly labs. And in some patients I've had dramatic uh, effects. And I think part of the reason is that one of the side effects of thalidomide, as we know, is it can affect these sensory C nerve fibers. So I think partly how it's doing is its direct effect on these like nerve factors. So the efficacy is oftentimes tied to sometimes even side effects the patients are having. Um, I think it truly has some very unique antifibrotic effects, but I just think the safety profile in this type of a population, it's not something I want to use. I ever want to use. Patients don't want to use it. It's just very risky medicine. And actually I've been more excited now because we do have some agents we can use off-label. And so uh, I've uh, had success uh, with some off-label um, medications, wanted to pick your brain on on some off-label medicines or even biologics that you've uh, been able to, to use in prognosis patients. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, you're touching on really a, a source of excitement for me for, you know, because some of some PN patients early on, early on after the approval of dupilumab for uh, atopic dermatitis and patients who I had, who had atopic dermatitis, but also had PN like lesions. Um, so we have to acknowledge, right, that some patients with AD really do have PN like lesions, but most patients with PN do not have AD. Uh, we, um, I started using dupilumab off label and um, have really been, you know, overwhelmed by the number of patients who were refractory to many of the agents we've just discussed, right? Methotrexate, cyclosporin, even, you know, mycophenolate, gabapentin in combination, but have still done uh, exceptionally well with dupilumab. And, you know, just knowing its favorable side effect profile, it's been, you know, a great option for me uh, to use in in patients where, you know, they may have an atopic diathesis. I have used it off-label, obviously, in patients who don't have an atopic diathesis, and it really has been uh, effective in many 
many of them as well, which again, I think speaks to part of what the pathophysiology as we're understanding, you know, I alluded to this before, we are learning about PN pathophysiology by these new agents um, and how they actually impact um, and, and, and reduce the burden and the symptoms of PN. So uh, I, that's something that's been very useful for me in the last, uh, you know, in the last few years, I would say. Have you had that experience too? Absolutely. So, you know, I've had uh, several patients who've, you know, been recalcitrant to therapy and been able to uh, try a very safe therapy that we have great safety data for that actually doesn't require regular laboratory monitoring uh, in Duplimab, as opposed to all of these nightmares I've been discussing with, uh, we've been discussing together at the Lidomide, not the Trance, Cyclosporin. And uh, uh, like you've been very surprised, um, I think it's a great way that we're learning more about what defines the disease. And uh, it's also, especially for this patient population, a middle-aged patient population, what a wonderful uh, route of administration. And we've actually seen many reports pop up from around the world. It's been overwhelming in terms of case reports and series of different pregnagularis patients treated with dupilumab and having positive results. It's really truly been global reports. If you look at it, it's all over Europe and the United States and Asia um, and different types of endotypes of patients and, and all of that. And you know, later on, we'll get to uh, some of our preliminary data and all of that, but I uh, absolutely agree with you. Uh, we went through kind of all the terrible options, but hopefully it's not too long that we have to be using many of these uh, and that'll conclude this session. So thanks so much, Serena, for all your insights. Oh, thank you for having me. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash P. 3. Look for all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.